0: Gary again from cBSports.com Again, it's now Monday, uh, January 12, 2015, and this is, of course, the Eye on College Basketball Podcast, brought to you by Squarespace, which recently launched a version of its platform called Squarespace 7. It has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, 15 new templates, and a feature called Cover Pages. You want to try it? Go to Squarespace.com and enter the offer code FUN at checkout to get 10% off that Squarespace Start here, go anywhere. Okay, I'm joined today by Rob Dostin from MDC Sports, and I want to start um, with the wild Sunday that we just witnessed. First, uh, Duke lost at North Carolina State, then Wisconsin lost at Rutgers, then Arizona lost at Oregon State. All three losers were actually heavy favorites, all uh, roughly double-digit favorites. I think Duke was around 9 or 10. So these were massive upsets. Rob, tell me, which result of those three surprised you the most?
1: probably arizona losing at oregon state um you know wisconsin was playing without frank kaminsky and then trey jackson got hurt uh late in the first half or at halftime i don't think he played in the second half so you know that one's i know it's rutgers but that's understandable at least and then nc state and duke like i feel like nc state every year has an upset like this in them and you know to be honest with you i feel like Mark Gottfried's team has kind of been underperforming a little bit this season. If you look at the the talent that he has on that roster, um, they should be, you know, either in the top 25 or close to the top 25. And winning at home against Duke, which is, you know, a rival, of the, what are they, 25 miles away or something like that? Yeah, it's it, close. Yeah, they're, they're going to give Duke a fight every single time um, at home. So, you know, Arizona losing at Oregon State was a little bit shocking to me. I didn't realize how good Oregon State has been playing this season. You know, I I think Larry Christowiak at this point has to be the Pac-12 coach of the year, but you know, I you got to put uh, Wayne Tinkle in the conversation. I mean, nobody had Oregon State doing anything this season, and I think they're what 11 and 4 now. They've won a couple Pac-12 games already. They're obviously going to, you know, be competitive anytime they play at home so uh, i mean you have to put him in the conversation there he's really really done a good job with them
0: it's interesting you mentioned that you didn't notice how good oregon state have been playing or how well oregon state have been playing uh this year i didn't either like yesterday yeah i do this thing as you know last call for drunk bets where i I had thrown up a late game every night and it's it's mostly unsuccessful but it's still something i'm committed to doing and um and, and so I, I, I noticed the line on Arizona. I think it opened at around 10, went down to 9 at one point. And I was like, really, Arizona over Oregon State? Because in my head, I'm like, that's Oregon State, that's like, this should be simple. And then I started looking at the numbers, like all the analytics of Oregon State, and they're not bad. You know, like I still picked Arizona because I'm I'm committed to losing at this thing. But but <laughs> but Oregon State isn't bad, and, and that's a testament to Wayne because, I, like, they shouldn't be good. You, they haven't been good in a while. That's why they had to get a new coach. And you look at that roster, and there's no reason for them to be competing with Arizona, and yet they knocked off Arizona. And this is Arizona's second really big questionable loss. Now, I know we're sitting here talking about how good Oregon State is, but it's, uh, relatively speaking, not not good enough to be banging heads with Arizona on a Sunday night. They've got the loss at UNLV a couple days before Christmas, now a loss at Oregon State. And in theory, this, I mean, it, you know, I guess on one hand, this isn't a big deal. You know, it's still early. Um, but, you know, the Arizona team last year wasn't taking losses like this early, and this one already has two. What do you make of that?
1: Well, I think they had them scouted perfectly. Uh, They played like a a 2 3 zone that kind of looked like a matchup zone at times. And, you know, they sloughed off and they dared Arizona to try to shoot over the top. And, you know, if there's a a knock on this Arizona team, it's that they can't really score from the perimeter. You know, at times, TJ McConnell is their best offensive option. And while I love TJ and I think he's a really, really good point guard, it's not a good thing for Arizona if he is your best option on the offensive end of the floor. It's the same thing with Kansas, you know. Frank Mason has been really good this season, but if Frank Mason is their best offensive option and their best player this year, then you know Kansas is in trouble. So I think Arizona's, they're going to run into uh, problems and they're going to lose games like this if T.J. McConnell is the guy that they're looking to for offense, especially down the stretch. And that's what happened. I mean, I don't know, did you watch the game? Did you see the end of it? Yes. At the end of the game, they were playing Stanley Johnson and Rondé Hollis Jefferson at the 4-5 or because that's how bogged down their offense was. And I think that Oregon State kind of gave us a blueprint on, you know, what you have to do to beat Arizona. What's going to be interesting is to see, you know, I I have all the respect in the world for Sean Miller um, when it comes to, you know, coaching a basketball team. And it's going to be interesting to see what he can do with this team to make an adjustment where they score a little bit more. Like last year when they lost Brandon Ashley, um, he got into more of like an up-tempo system and started pressing a little bit more because they had – you know, Rondé and Aaron Gordon and Nick Johnson, all these, like, absurd, ridiculous Olympic-level athletes and just let them get out and run and make plays and do what they do in the open floor. And I don't think that he has the pieces to do that this season. So it's going to be interesting to see where he goes from here. And remember, Arizona on Saturday, I forget if they're at – I think they're – they get Utah at home. Yeah, Yeah, they get Utah at home. And Utah might be the best team in the Pac-12 this season. I mean, I think they are in Ken Palm's ratings. So – You know, that's going to be a really, really interesting matchup. And frankly, if Arizona loses to Utah at home, I don't know if they can win the Pac-12 regular season title.
0: How about this? In the preseason, when I would have Matt Norlander on, Sam Bassini on, my colleagues at CBS Sports. We were sort of going through the power conferences. It seemed, I, I don't know, pretty clear at that time that if you were trying to pick a a power conference team that you could trust to win the championship. Like who was like win it's own league championship, you know, Kentucky seemed like, yeah, they were the favorite, but they could maybe be threatened by Florida and also a preseason top 10 team. And Wisconsin was the favorite in the big 10, but you know, uh, Michigan was still there. Michigan state was still there. Nebraska was a preseason top 25 team. I think most people thought Arizona was, if you're trying to pick the most likely lock to win a league title, it might be Arizona and you look up now, and I'm not even sure they're the best team in the Pac-12. Like Utah, by a bunch of different measuring devices, seems to be better right now.
1: Yeah, and I think that speaks to just how good Larry Christoyak has gotten this team. Like, I to be honest with you, I think Arizona is just like maybe at like a touch worse than we thought they were in the preseason. You know, they still can really, really get after you defensively. Um, you know, they still have that big front line. They can still overpower you in the post at times. Like they, they pretty much are who we thought they were. They're just having a little bit more issues scoring the ball than we expected. So I think this says a lot more about Utah and the job that, that Christowiak has done there than it does about Arizona and, you know, not living up to expectations or anything like that.
0: You know, so once upon a time, I, I think uh, a lot of people were talking about how there was a, a pretty clear top tier of college basketball teams. It was like Kentucky and Duke and Arizona, etc. But in the past week, we've seen Kentucky being taken to overtime twice. Duke lost convincingly on the road. Arizona – has now lost, like I said, at UNLV and at Oregon State. Is there is the gap between whatever teams we thought exist? Is it, is it smaller than we thought, or is there even a gap at all? Like I, I think we're like, oh, there's a top tier. I don't even know if there's a top tier anymore.
1: I, I still think there is. I still think that Duke and Kentucky, when push comes to shove, are the two best teams in the country. Maybe it's not as big of a gap as we expected, but, you know, Paris, if there's anything that I've learned uh, doing this job, it's that, we, us, the guys that are supposed to be prognosticators, really have no idea what we're talking about. That's sweet. Like, that's sweet. We're, to hear. we're making slightly more educated guesses than, you know, maybe someone that's a fan. But, like, if, if you look at what's going on right now, I mean, Duke lost at NC State, Arizona lost at Oregon State, Texas lost twice. They were number 10 in the country during uh, this weekend. Kentucky's got taken to overtime twice. DePaul is tied for first place in the Big East. Like, what is going on in this sport? <laughs>
0: You know what I think is more true is that people is that we are now in a position to react publicly to everything in real time that we end up muddying our own opinions. I I actually try to stay away from this as much as possible, but it's I think you can ride a roller coaster and end up at the exact same spot you were at beforehand. It's a little bit like the Andrew Wiggins thing last year. If you would have just stayed committed at the very beginning, like, Andrew Wiggins is the best freshman in the country. Andrew Wiggins is going to be great. If you'd have just stayed committed to that, you could have avoided all the questions throughout and then looked up at the end and said, see, I told you. And I, I wonder if that's a little bit like, um, that's an example, a small example, but an example of college basketball in general. Like, you can, you can um, spend this past week watching Kentucky go to overtime against Ole Miss and try to pick apart Kentucky and wonder how vulnerable they really are and, then watch them go to double overtime against Texas AM and, and 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 write down the five biggest issues facing Kentucky and put question marks beside a bunch of things. But if you just if you just chill and let it all play out, we'll look up in March and Kentucky's still gonna be Kentucky. Like you said, Duke's still gonna be Duke and so on and so forth. I wonder if if these sort of twists and turns have always happened in college basketball, but we haven't always had Twitter and social media to react to them every single minute.
1: Yeah, and I think you're probably right about that. The other thing you got to remember is that now that we're in league play, you know, everybody is going to have everything that Kentucky and Arizona do do. They're going to have it completely scouted out. They're going to have a game plan for everything that they've done. And, you know, the teams that haven't really struggled at this point in the season, like, if you're undefeated, you're not changing all that much from what you do game to game. Like, what you've done has worked. You know, Virginia's not going away from that pack line defense. Kentucky's not going to do anything different than what they've done all season long. And now you see teams figuring out what they're doing, game planning their offense or their defense to what they've done and what they see on film. So now, you know, you have Calipari and all these guys are going to be making their own adjustments. So it'll be fun to watch that. And the other thing is Duke and Kentucky and and, uh, Arizona and even like Wisconsin, like when you host these teams, it is the biggest game of your season. Mm -hmm. You know, Texas A&M, like that's what they've been looking forward to since November is that one shot that they get at Kentucky at home. And they're going to give it everything they have. And, you know, maybe for like – all right, think about Arizona on a Sunday night. They've, been, they've spent four days in the state of Oregon. They played at Oregon on Thursday, right? So they're up there for four days. They have nothing to do all day Sunday. Maybe they have to shoot around at what, like 11 a.m.? Nothing to do all day Sunday except sit on a couch and watch – a couple of football games and, you know, then they have to get up at, at, at 7 p.m. their time and go play a game against a team that is as fired up as they've been for a game all season long. Like, that's not an easy thing to do. And we're sitting here trying to make definitive statements on 19 and 20 and 21-year-old kids. And, you know, if I know anything about me when I was 19 or 20 or 21 or, you know, right now at 29, is that I'm not really all that reliable and all that consistent. And so I can't even imagine what it's like for, for these kids where they, you know, they almost are expected to win every single game. So I think that's a factor that you have to throw in as well.
0: Um, we mentioned Wisconsin's loss at Rutgers um, earlier. You know, Duke lost at NC State. That, that, we've seen great Duke teams lose at NC State before. I, that really doesn't bother me that much. If anything, Michael, use it as some sort of teaching tool and they'll be fine. I agree with you. Duke's still going to be fine. Um uh, Arizona's a little bit of a head scratcher, but but whatever. I, I you know the idea that sh- you know if Sean Miller has a bad team, it'll be the first time in a long time, um, and he's not going to. I mean, that's going to be a top ten team from now until the end. Um, the one, the other loss was the Wisconsin at Rutgers, and that one does come with a bit of an asterisk because Frank Kaminsky uh, did not play. Um, uh, who who was who got hurt again?
1: Trey Jackson. Trey Jackson, Jackson go, right like got a hurt a with an ankle. It was something. like a
0: foot or an ankle, right? So yeah. like they were shorthanded. but still, I will say this because I got a lot of this last night on Twitter. You know, as I tweeted, you know, Wisconsin just lost at Rutgers. Like a hundred people wanted to tell me that Frank Kaminsky didn't play, as if I don't have the internet. Like it's so funny to me. <laughs> like I like this is my job. All right, I'm I'm clearly on Twitter because like I just tweeted. The idea that you feel like you need to inform me that Frank Kaminsky didn't play, like I don't, like like it's my goddamn job to know this type of stuff. Like, what do you like? Why do you feel like you have to tell me that? And so, like, people are like, oh, well, you know, Frank Kaminsky didn't play. I know Frank Kaminsky didn't play. Like, I was, I, I was, I was watching the game. I'm very aware. Either way, they were still like 15 point favorites even without Frank Kaminsky at Rutgers. And this is a Rutgers team that, you know, went. I think 5 three. They lost to
1: St. Peter's right. by 18 at home. Right. Like, that's all you need to know about this Rutgers team.
0: That was still a massive upset. Like, the idea, you know, with Frank, without Frank uh, uh, Kaminsky, uh, even limited uh, by injury, that was still a massive upset for to lose to Rutgers. Like, Wisconsin's going to be fine. Like, Bo Ryan's teams are always fine. But um, still, that was a pretty significant moment. Uh, it, maybe not for Wisconsin, because whatever, they'll move on. But, but certainly for Rutgers, I mean, that that's a that's a memorable program moment.
1: Yeah, and the one thing I liked about that, and this is getting off topic a little sure. bit, I don't know, at the very end, uh, what they did with the fans, they, didn't, they held them off the court and they didn't let them storm the floor until um, Wisconsin got off the court, which is something that I think, you know, uh, I don't know if you remember last year, it was Utah Valley in New Mexico State. Um at the end of March, sure, first, yeah. place, first place in the WAC, and Utah Valley fans stolen the floor while New Mexico State was still on the court, and you ended up getting a fight between the New Mexico State players and the Utah Valley fans. And, you know, what? remember what happened with Marcus Smart last year with the fans when they ran the court? Sure. I, I thought that it was really good at the uh, the Rutgers security staff that they were able to get the, uh, the opposing team and the visiting team off the floor before they let the fans on there, and you know, they
0: tried to do that with Duke NC State the other day too. If you saw like, Coach but that May, didn't,
1: but it didn't work.
0: Yeah, I know. But they went and shook hands early. They he was trying. He's been very K has been very aware of that. Um, so yeah, like anything you can do to make that possible, tough situation not so tough. I'm for I'm for that. But
1: it, I mean, it's hard when you have like sure. 1500 kids at each end just pushing on there, and like ten old security guards and like yellow jackets sitting there trying to hold them back. Like that's not going to work that well. But you know, I, I just – it was one thing that I noticed and, and, and something that I felt should get pointed out and applauded because it, it, I think it's the way that we have to do it.
0: Uh, for I'm Jim, not
1: a, yeah. I'm not against court storms, but it's just that's a situation that it, – it's it's kind of like a powder keg. You're just waiting for that spark and something really, really bad happens.
0: You know what? Like people hit me with this the other day because I was tweeting about um, – and I, his name escapes me. I apologize. But the young man who uh, – it was in a wheelchair and famously, like, stormed the court in his wheelchair when NC State beat Duke a few years ago. I was actually in Raleigh for that game. And so as it became clear NC State was going to win on Sunday, I sort of tweeted about him. And then he tweeted back at me. Like, he's like, I'm here. I'm ready to go. And, you know, I was like, I, I was like you know, I, I was, um, I don't know, tweeting as if I was excited about a court storm. And then people were reminding me how dangerous they can be. Um, and and I, I didn't want it to come off like I contradict myself because I publicly said before, like, I think court storming should be banned because um, they, th- though it's very difficult to find examples of or, or multi, you know, plenty of examples of serious injuries, although they do exist during court stormings, um, we can all see how some sort of problem can happen. Like some, a student could hurt another student, a student could hurt a player an opposing player could be agitated by students and it could turn into a brawl. Like there's a whole bunch of variables that could that could really lead to something um, bad. So I am, I'm, I'm with you, fundamentally against court stories. I think they should be banned. Um, but if we're going to have them, I, I like to see the guy in the wheelchair involved. That's That was my only point.
1: Yeah, and and I don't know. If, see, it's part of like the game. You don't really see that at, I mean, it doesn't happen in the NBA. It doesn't happen in really any other sport except maybe college football. So. I like the tradition of it. Um, and I think that for the most part, like most fans are good people, like they're just looking out there to have fun. If you're sure. like a twenty year old college kid, you're not running on the floor to try to fight some six foot eight power forward that weighs two hundred and forty five pounds and could bench you twenty eight times. now I'd fight that's the not, point
0: guard way before I'd point fight a forward.
1: <laughs> like you're not that's not what you're trying to do though. You're not trying to start a fight. You're just going out there to try to jump around and maybe get on TV and maybe like Photo bomb the interview with your coach <laughs> on ESPN. Like, that's what you want to do. Get a selfie when you're, like, in the middle of uh, whatever NC State's court is. That's what you want to do. It's just, it's the issue of, you know, if, you're mad when you lose. Any athlete sure. is going to be mad when they lose. And if they run into a fan and the wrong thing happens, like, if one punch is thrown, like, that could turn into a full-out brawl and turn into a really, really ugly scene. And I think the biggest thing is, try to avoid that. You know, let's do something where... That never happens, and we never get to a point where we say, all right, now we have to change it because this happened. Don't let it happen in the first
0: place. I know, like, I, I I agree 100%, and I do think this, if we continue to allow court stormings, like, the SEC has banned them. Like, you know, like, you have to pay a hefty fine, uh, relatively speaking, but a hefty fine if your students storm the court. And so there's an incentive for university security to prevent it, not just try to make it as safe as possible, but actually um, – prevent it now it still happens like you know Ole Miss stormed the football field after it beat Alabama and I was in Nashville many years ago when Vanderbilt fans stormed the court after they upset Florida I think it was Billy's second national championship team and so they still happen but they're they're very rare in the SEC and I I think that's more right than wrong because um we can talk about um you know, it's part of the game and it's tradition and it makes for great television, and all of that is undeniably true. But I will say that if, if you continue to let these things happen, and I, you know, I, I don't want to come off as like some footy du but like anybody who knows me knows that I'm the opposite of that. But if you continue to let these things happen, there will be a fight sometime and not just one that involves, you know, two teams that nobody cares about. Like there will be a high profile, you know, punches thrown between student opposing player or something and then that you know why wait for that um, to to do something about this like if you know that's going to happen sooner or later and I'm confident that will happen sooner or later um, if I were running a league we would be putting in um, some sort of something to try to ensure not only that doesn't happen but but that court stormings in general um, do not happen because I, I do think it's a it's a bad situation waiting to happen. We've had bad moments before. Nothing serious, seriously um, high-profile, but it, it'll get there at some point. Uh, meantime, Virginia won at Notre Dame on Saturday. Came back. Um, just a fun, fun game. Lots of shot-making. Uh, the Cavaliers have now won at VCU, at Maryland, and at Notre Dame. Nobody has anywhere close to as quality of road wins as those three wins. Make sense of this. Has Tony Bennett replace brad stevens as the wizard of of college hoops you did a really nice thing on the pack line defense that they run um a few weeks ago and um it, it is just remarkable to watch them play on that end of the court and they're also really efficient on the offensive end of the court and there's nothing on that roster that suggests they ought to be operating at this level but they are and they're doing it for the second straight year yeah how much of this is just tony bennett's awesome at what he does
1: i, I think it's all tony bennett is awesome at what he does and i, I I think that Brad Stevens is the wrong comparison for him. I, I would I would more liken him to, Bo Ryan than Brad Stevens because what I think Tony does so well is go out and target the guys that he knows is going to fit into what he wants to do. And you know, I think I think you wrote about this right where uh, Virginia doesn't have a McDonald's All American. They don't even have like a consensus top fifty recruit. Nope. And if James uh, Justin, Anderson. Justin Justin Anderson, yeah, if Justin Anderson. I think he's going to end up being a pro. Like he's a perfect the prototype three and D guy. But if, if he doesn't end up being a first round pick or even an NBA draft pick, like they don't have a guy on that team that's going, going to end up being an NBA player. So what he's able to do with them and, and and drill into them defensively, and that's the biggest thing is like everybody on that team buys in. They're not so much worried about their stats. They're not worried about you know whether or not they're going to get 15 shots a game. All they want to do is go out there and win. Right. And so he goes out there and he targets guys that he knows are going to play their asses off defensively, are going to share the ball on the offensive end, and you know are just going to buy into this team Virginia concept. And I think that's exactly what Bo Ryan has done at Wisconsin, is where he he doesn't care about recruiting rankings or how good you're going to be in the future. He wants guys that fit into his system and what he does. And I think that when you can target those guys on the recruiting trail, like that's the hardest thing for a coach to do, is to find a guy that fits into what he wants to do and is going to believe in, to, in him as a coach. And I think, you know, Tony Bennett has kind of mastered that art at this point.
0: Yeah, the, the only reason I brought up Stevens was not anything sort of style. But just like once upon a time, Brad Stevens was sort of labeled as, God, nobody right, does it right. better than this guy. You know, Which is why he got the Boston Celtics job, frankly. And it, it's starting to look like, you know, Tony Bennett is that type of guy. And I spent a long time on the phone with Tony a couple of weeks ago for that column you mentioned. And, um... I was just struck by sort of his approach to everything. We were sort of chatting about. I, I told him that you know Virginia fans were constantly hitting me up about how they don't get enough attention and people don't talk about them enough. And he was like, "Really?" And he was like, "Really?" Like they do that? And I was like, uh, "I was like, yeah. Like they 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 think you guys deserve more than you get." And he was like, "Oh, I actually think we get too much attention." He's like, "You know, we you know we're we're always in the newspaper and we're always like, you know, what what else do we want?" And I they were getting ready to play Davidson. And I thought this was interesting because as I was dealing with, and I say dealing with, I wasn't really dealing with anything, but Virginia fans had been tweeting me nonstop. Like, you, you, you need to write about us. You need to talk about us. And so as I'm, as I'm sort of dealing with that on one end, um, I'm talking to Tony like maybe the day before the Davidson game. And um, I, I, I just didn't know because I had not looked yet. I was like, so wh- are you guys on TV tomorrow night? And he said, I, I don't know. Um, I think maybe, but I'm not sure and i wouldn't looked it up they were on espn u my point being he had no idea if they were even playing on national television like he does not like so like some coaches say they don't care about i don't care if people are talking about us i don't care if you know we're on tv i'm just trying to do my job and yet that was just a moment where it was it wasn't just the guy saying, I'm only concerned with doing my job well. I don't care about any of the other stuff. It was a moment where he proved it unintentionally. He genuinely had no idea if the game they were playing in 24 hours was going to be on national television or not. And um, I, I just think that like, he's really created this culture of... And, and so when your head coach doesn't care about anything... It, it, it can sort of trickle down to the players don't care about anything other than let's get better today and win tomorrow. And I, I don't know if anybody, you know, with all due respect to Bo Ryan and whoever else, I don't know if anybody has a better culture of that right now than, than Tony does at Virginia.
1: Yeah, I would actually absolutely agree with that. Um, I, I remember Virginia was playing at Barclays for, I think it was a Barclays center classic, wherever one of those um, precinct game was. And I was talking to, uh, talking to Justin Anderson just about you know my biggest concern entering the season with Virginia was that they didn't have like a go-to guy offensively they didn't have someone where defense had to pay attention to him last year they had Joe Harris and you know they could run Joe Harris off of screens and and defenses had to know where he was at all times and you know what Justin told me like Joe had a bad senior well quote-unquote bad like his scoring went down from 16 to 12 points and what Justin was telling me is that Tony basically used him as a decoy all season long. Was he would run him off these screens, knowing that he would get two or three defenders paying attention to him, and that would open stuff up for everybody else. And Joe was perfectly fine with that. He was like, "Yeah, cool. Let's do it. We're going to win more games this way." And they ended up winning the ACC. And that, like he said, that's what this team is kind of built on is the idea of it doesn't matter who gets the shot or who gets the points as long as at the end of the day we have more points than the other team. And uh, this. Maybe it's just us that'll find this interesting, but I just looked them up on uh, Ken Palm, the Virginia Ken Palm page, and they're predicted to win uh, every single game yeah. the rest of the season, uh, which includes at North Carolina, a sweep of Louisville, and against Duke. And uh, I mean, I think that kind of tells you where this team is um, right now. That doesn't happen.
0: Yeah, I think the only teams currently projected by Ken Palm to still, you know, be favored in every game they play, um, Kentucky. Virginia and Gonzaga. I think that's it. And um, you know, Gonzaga is league related, although I think Gonzaga is terrific. But I don't think Virginia is going to run the table in the ACC. But the idea that a statistical analysis could project you that way on January twelfth is uh, it's pretty impressive. Remember, today's Ion College Basketball Podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, where you can easily create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace is now redesigned. With Squarespace 7 interface, including integration with Google Apps, partnership with Getty Images, 15 new templates, and cover pages. And it has an amazing support team that works 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Everything starts at just $8 a month. It includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website. So your content's going to look great on every device, every time. To start a free trial, and no credit card required, uh, get to building your website today when you decide to sign up. Make sure to use um, the offer code FUN at Squarespace.com. Offer code FUN to get 10% off and to show your support for the Eye on College Basketball podcast. That's Squarespace. Start here. uh, Go anywhere. All right, let's do some uh, news and notes presented by Squarespace. And um, one thing I wanted to touch on is there were some big shots this weekend for a couple of guards who had kind of been, if not absolutely been, struggling this season. One for Marcus Page. The other for Marcus Foster is Page um, hits a floater to uh, to beat Louisville on uh, Saturday afternoon and then Marcus Foster you know hits the shot that forces overtime that leads to Kansas State upsetting Oklahoma um, both those guys out of whatever funk they were in and, and specifically with Kansas State I think it, it was reasonable at least before Saturday to call them the biggest disappointment in college basketball Have, did they figure something out or was that just sort of one game and they'll get back to being what they were
1: I think that the bench taught Marcus Foster a pretty significant lesson. I don't know if you saw the Oklahoma State game, but he got benched because of whatever. Like, you talk to ten different people, they give you ten different reasons right. of what's going on there. Basically, he just he wasn't happy in his role. Like, he wanted more shots. I think he wanted to be more of a point guard because he got in his head that that's what he wants to be at the next level. Whatever the case was, he was just not playing the way that Bruce Weber expected him to be. So he benched him against Oklahoma State. He played 14 minutes. He didn't score. Kansas State lost by 14. They were 7-7. and Like, it just – it looked really, really bad. And he was on the bench. And, you know, I'm not going to repeat it because I'd probably get fired and you get fired at the end of the podcast and nobody wants that. But you could tell when they zoomed in on him and you read his lips, he was not happy right. with Bruce Weber leaving him on the bench. But I think he also got the point because when you come back uh, after a game like that and you realize that you were on national TV, like cussing out your coach, people can read your lips like that's kind of a humbling experience and no NBA team if his goals get to the NBA no NBA team wants a kid that's going to sulk on the bench so Bruce Weber said that Monday and that Tuesday were the two best days of practice that Foster has had all year he came back came off the bench and had 23 Mm -hmm. in a win over uh TCU and then against Oklahoma he didn't get down when he got in foul trouble he actually hit the game winning shot at the end of overtime as well and I think that what you're seeing now is that he's kind of woken up a little bit and he's kind of gotten the point. And if he's getting the point and he's playing like a guy that could be an All-American, then I think that Kansas state um, is good enough to finish in the top half of the big 12. Cause that, I mean, they are, you know, they are good enough to do that. So it'll be interesting to see if this continues. And, 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 you know, I think they're going to be a really interesting, let's say they finish, you know, 11 and seven or 10 and eight in the big 12. And they, you know, they beat everyone they should beat at home. They get an upset win here or there. What do you do with them come NCAA tournament time? Because they really have a
0: bad non-conference record. I think they did so much damage to themselves in the non-conference. I mean, they they lost to Long Beach State. They lost to Texas uh, Southern at home. Texas Southern at home. Really, those are the only two, like, bad. But, well, I mean, at Tennessee, that's probably not a good, you know, especially considering Alabama it, just Pitt's ran. it's not a good loss. Yeah. They lost by
1: 23 to pit.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've. They really did some serious damage to themselves in the non-conference. I mean, they'd have to finish—I don't know. I mean, they'd have to—they'd have to go over and above on uh, in the league to, to even put themselves in consideration for. Well, if they
1: finish—if they finish ten and eight in the league,
0: they're going to have fourteen losses on the season. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot of losses. And some bad ones. Some really bad ones.
1: Especially when Texas Southern is one of those losses.
0: Yeah, I, if I were uh, a betting man, and I am a betting man, I would bet against them uh, being <laughs> the NCAA tournament. Not a very good one. Not not lately. Certainly not. Um hey, George, What's your record on that right now, by the way? Uh Nineteen and, 21, 19, 21 and 3. 1921 and 3. So you haven't lost that much money. No, Well, I mean, if you can find it just to late-night drunk bets. But when you start including my uh, early day – Sober bets and like you know, sort of like early evening drunk bets, it can get, it can get, you know, it gets lopsided. The bowl season was bad for me.
1: 12 yeah. gauge cost that's, me a lot of money. That's why, that's why I, uh, I stay away from gambling because I'm awful at it. Like I try to help my buddies make picks and, you know, I'm just, there was, there was one stretch where I think I lost like 11 in a row and my <laughs> friend was like, yeah, I kept asking you for real picks and then I would literally just bet against. Whatever you said, and I started making money.
0: Yeah, no, no, no. Most what you'll find out is most gamblers are bad at it, but that doesn't that doesn't stop them. And so, um, yeah, what are you gonna do? Hey, uh, Georgia Tech lost to Wake Forest over the weekend, which like probably didn't even register for most people, but um, it did drop Georgia Tech to zero and three in the ACC uh, among the on the hot seat power conference guys. Brian Gregory is probably. Uh, the most up against it now he's in his fourth season he's never not lost twice as many ACC games as he's won never finished better than ninth in the league um if this goes the way it looks like it's going right now do you think he's going to get a fifth year in, in at Georgia Tech oh,
1: man I, I'm so bad at predicting these things but you know it just doesn't feel like there's any momentum in that program that's the problem you know? like y- you can have a bad team if you've gone out and you got some good recruits coming in, like look, what Billy Kennedy's doing at Texas A&M now I think is a good comparison. Like that Texas A&M team probably isn't going to be all that good this year. They're probably not going to make the NCAA tournament. They're probably not, you know, if they'd beaten Kentucky, that might be the highlight of his tenure so far. It's, what is it? Four years at Texas A&M. But he's got like all these good recruits coming in next season. And he landed a couple good recruits for the 2014 class. And, you know, he's starting to make some headway in the state of Texas. And so you, I don't think you can get rid of them yet, just no. because you know the future looks really bright. Like what what looks bright about Georgia Tech
0: right now? That's exactly the problem. I was talking to, uh, with somebody about this over the weekend, and you know they asked me about uh, about Gregory, and I, I said you know like the, the problem becomes like you know if you're the administration, it's not just that this year is going poorly or the first three years have gone poorly, but it's like why would next year be any different? You know, and, or you know, is there any sort of Tangible sign that suggests next year is going to be better, and I, you know I like Brian, and I hate having these conversations about guys because it's their jobs. I wouldn't want you know two idiots on a podcast somewhere talking about my jobs, and uh, and so I i don't enjoy these conversations at all. But like if you look at it honestly, and you go, okay, this you know exactly like what you said about Texas A M. Okay, so the Billy Kennedy thing hasn't really gone well, and this season's probably not going to go too well either. But okay, so then you ask, but is next year going to be better? And you can start. You could go, yeah, I could like he's enrolling a top ten recruiting class. There's there's at least some reason to believe in the future of Billy Kennedy at Texas a and I just wonder if there's reasons to believe in the future of Brian Gregory at Georgia Tech. And if I if somebody asked asked me to answer that honestly, I. I don't know I mean I don't see it I mean there's no re it's not like there's these awesome transfers sitting out or these awesome recruits on the way it does seem i think you used the right word it's a it's a program that seems to lack momentum right now
1: yeah the the interesting one to me i I forget who made the point it might have been you that made this point that you know everyone um, that we kind of said was on the hot seat interview yeah season, i did that. had a really good had a really good start to the year um what about Steve Lavin now yeah, if I mean, lost three in a row to start, uh, start Big East play. Like Rasheed Jordan, who knows what's going on with him. Right. Um, they don't have any depth up front. They landed a recruit today, a top 50 kid. Right. But it's not like that one top 50 kid is going to be able to change the fact that they're losing, you know, four seniors and might lose Chris Obekba and Rashid Jordan to the NBA. He didn't get uh, Isaiah Briscoe. Um, he's still in the Knicks for Sheik Diallo, but who knows if he's going to end up getting him. I think Kansas and Kentucky both want him too. So.
0: Uh, What about Steve Live? Well, I you know they're still sitting here at eleven and four. You know, you know, on January twelfth, so that's 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 not awful. And three of the losses are to currently ranked teams, like Gonzaga, single digit loss, uh, Seton Hall, a loss on the road, and then a loss to uh, Villanova. um, You know, uh, that was I guess last Tuesday. And then the other loss is, is a Butler loss, right, by four points. So there really is no bad losses. I think it's th- it's four top 30 Ken Palm losses. And then they've got wins over Minnesota, uh, got a win over Syracuse, got a blowout win of a two-lane team that isn't bad. I mean, isn't good, but isn't bad. So uh, though the 0-3 Big East start is concerning, particularly when two of those games are home games, uh, one's a loss on the road to a, to a, a ranked team, and the other... And another is a, a loss um, at home to the team that's probably going to win the league. So I'm not I'm not that concerned with St. John's right now. I, I still think that they have an opportunity to turn this around, be fun, and actually make the NCAA tournament. Um, but but clearly, when you when you start 11 and one, you don't ever want to be 11 and four, right? That's not you know there's no sense in arguing. It's not ideal. That. Yeah, if you're 11 and one, you don't want to look up two weeks later and be uh, 11 and four. But I I would guess they'll do enough. And Steve. Uh, For a variety of reasons, we'll we'll probably um, be okay. But it is interesting, like the guys that we thought might be on the hot seat, and still could be. It's very, very early. These things can turn in a variety of ways. Um, But Kevin Willard, um, Travis Ford, Tom Crean, so far, um, so good. Last thing I wanted to talk to you about, it was a headline from uh, late last week. And I don't know if it got a lot of national attention, uh, because it sort of seemed like an old story to some people. But I know it's something you and I have both written about in the summer. And that's that, um, you know, the three Oregon basketball players um, were accused of sexual assault toward the end of last season. And we found out about it in the offseason. And it made for this weird sort of um, admission by Oregon, Oregon officials, where um, – you know, because for people who don't understand the timeline, this happened just before the Pac-12 tournament. Then the, the the three accused players, two only two of them were actually a part of the team, actively a part of the team. Brandon Austin was sitting out, and uh, Dana Altman had said he knew his players were accused of something, but didn't know which players and didn't know what. Said he never knew Brandon Austin was accused of sexual assault while at Providence. Um, said, and then we find out that the president actually did know what the players were accused of so that we're operating you know if you just take their story at face value and you shouldn't you take their story at face value it's like the president knew but the basketball coach didn't it's like none of it made sense right and i i think you pointed this out i know i pointed it out and i essentially um i think i used a kinder word but but I said Dana Altman's lying here he has to be lying or else he was um, recklessly irresponsible in running his basketball program one of the two he's either lying or he's recklessly and irresponsible and so I say all that to say um, a, the young woman um, the alleged victim uh, or the accuser uh, filed a lawsuit against both Oregon and Dana Altman last week alleging all sorts of things uh, most uh, in simple terms that everybody is lying that if you say you didn't know Brandon Austin was accused of sexual assault at Providence, you're lying. If you say, um, you, you, you didn't know what players were involved before you played them in the PAC 12 tournament and and the NCAA tournament, um, that that's not the truth. Um, is this going to ultimately cost Dana Altman his job? The, uh, really accomplished and, and quality columnist at the Oregonian, John Casano, uh, wrote that Dana Altman should be fired and that for every day that he's still employed is a bad day for Oregon. I, I don't know that that um, that he's going to survive this. Do you, you think Dana Altman's going to survive this?
1: No, and I wrote that he should be fired back in May or June or whenever when all, all this stuff first kind of came out. Right. And I think the most damning piece of evidence against him is that In that lawsuit that was filed, Brandon Austin's mom actually told the lawyer's investigator that she had told Oregon everything, that Oregon knew everything that he was accused of. They knew why he was suspended. They knew why he was kicked out of school. They knew everything about the situation with Brandon Austin at Providence, which is the truth. And I don't even think that – look, I flat out don't buy that Dana Alvin had no idea what was going on because I was having conversations – about Brandon Austin and the, that sexual assault allegation at Providence in like November. Sure. And like I don't, I don't talk to that many important people, but a lot of people that I knew knew about this. I'm sure a lot of people that you knew knew about this. Of course. This. And it was to the point where the first time it was ever written publicly was in March, and I remember that story from the. I think it was like March 19th, and I remember the date because when it was published in the Wall Street Journal, I was like, whoa. Like, this isn't common knowledge. People don't know about this yet. That's how many conversations I had about it. And if I knew about it, then either Dana Altman, one, completely ignored the fact that, you know, this kid was kicked out of school for something that was obviously pretty serious. Or two, just, you know, overlooked the fact that he was bringing the kid into his program that was accused of sexual assault. And, you know, the one thing that has kind of been brought up is that Brandon Austin was placed there like it was a nike thing sure oregon is nike school he came up a nike kid um so there that's that doesn't look better for alderman either so either he's just like a complete pawn in this program and has absolutely no teeth and no say in what's going on there which you know is not ideal for the coach of a program or he's a guy that doesn't own up to the fact that he brought a kid that was accused of sexual assault onto the campus and then that kid committed another sexual assault like i i understand giving someone a second chance like Austin was never officially charged. I don't think he was convicted of anything. So I understand giving a kid a second chance. But if you bring him onto your campus and he does the exact same thing that he was accused of and kicked out of another school for, like, you have to own up to that. You have to face the music for that. And, you know, that's my biggest issue is that he's he's not taking ownership of the fact that he brought in a kid That could be, you know, like a serial sexual predator onto his campus. You know, this thing is, it's so murky because sexual assault issues, like, it's really, really hard because the only people that actually know what happened are the accuser and the three people she accused. And it's always going to be a he said, she said kind of thing. Like, they have different stories. So who really knows what actually happens? My issue is that he brought a kid that was accused of sexual assault onto his campus that kid is accused of another sexual assault and then he lied about whether or not he knew what was going on and to me that is a fireable
0: offense yeah to me this is very simple you either knew and you're lying now which is awful or you didn't know when i knew and you knew and everybody and lots of people in basketball knew which is recklessly irresponsible so like you you pick i don't care like okay you can pick a or b those are the only options here a is you knew and now you're lying that's awful. That's fireable. B is you you didn't know, but you should have. That's also awful. So like I'll let you pick, but you got to pick one of those two. And the other part of the story that just flew in the face of common sense was the idea that Dana Altman was told three of his players, two of whom were a part of his team that was competing in the Pacto tournament and NCAA tournament were accused of something very serious and yet he didn't know which players and he didn't know what, what it was. That's the story. That was the initial story, at least. Um, are you out of your mind? Like in what, what, I've talked to a dozen college basketball coaches about this and all of them. Like, and, and I'm not even talking about people who hate Dana oh all or people who have an grind. people, they're just like, come on, man. Like if college basketball coaches, and this is sort of the column I wrote back in, you know, again, early off season. They, they often talk about themselves as, um, you know, as their players, as, hey, these are my sons, we're a family. And so I just try to, like, I have an 11-year-old, and I can imagine the cops knocking on my door. This is essentially what Dana Altman said happened. The cops knock on my door, and they say, um, let's say I had four kids, right? And they say, uh, hey, Gary, we just want to let you know um, one of your kids has been accused of something very, very serious um, but we cannot tell you which one and we cannot tell you what it is. But um, so just so just chill and we'll let you know when we know. We'll, we'll let you know when we can tell you more. Are you at, and I, you think I just say like it, you're okay? not gonna
1: figure it out like
0: you're not or gonna like, try, or I, like I would just happened. say okay. First off, I'd be like, no, 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 you ain't gonna do that. Like you're gonna tell me what's going on with my son. Or like I had a, a multiple coaches tell me this. What you do, if the cops won't tell you, and keep in mind, the cops would tell you, alright? You're the head basketball coach at a public university. If you said what players did what, if you genuinely wanted to know, they would tell you, alright? So that just doesn't fly in the face of anything. Uh, athletic departments and police staff, uh, police officers have like a, a pretty, um, uh, I don't want to say tight relation, but they, they know each other because they, they have to. And so the idea that you couldn't find out is just crazy. But even if the cops were like as tight-lipped as ever and they weren't going to tell you, the first thing you do is gather your players in the locker room and you sit everybody down and you'd say, hey, listen, something went on this weekend. Some of you are in trouble. Um, I what's, Somebody speak up. Somebody tell me what's going on. We're not leaving here until we do. You'd figure it out if you wanted to figure out. So again, he either is lying that he didn't know. Which I think is more likely than not, or B, he didn't do anything to try to find out, which I think is negligent. And when you combine that with the fact that he and his staff actually got bonuses for making the NCAA tournament and all of those things, then you really put you put coaches in a position where they are financially benefiting from not knowing, so that they can continue to play uh, the you know uh, players that could theoretically help them win games. And the whole thing is just. Uh, a mess. Again, I I can't tell you for sure that anybody's lying, although Brandon Austin's mom seems to think that Dana Altman is lying. Um, But I can tell you for sure one of these two things. Um, They either lied during Mm -hmm. that press conference or um, they were recklessly irresponsible in how they handled the entire situation, dating back to enrolling Brandon Austin. And to me, um, in this climate of how uh athletics is treating um sexual assault and domestic violence um it's just well, it's it's not, not even
1: just that like in in a decent society just of a decent, yeah right. like if you're going to be a decent person if you're going to be in charge of like the lives of young people like you should be fired for you know either being negligent or lying about you know the risks that you were putting this campus at. So, I, I I absolutely agree with you that Dana Altman should be fired for this.
0: I would imagine that um, when we start the 2015 16 season, for one reason or another, um, he will not be the coach at Oregon. We'll see. Okay, well, listen, I've kept Rob here long enough, kept you guys here long enough. So, let's get out of here, uh, but not before I thank everybody for listening. You're kind to do that. Remember, you can subscribe to the On College Basketball Podcast on iTunes. It's the quickest way to get your hands on the latest podcast. So, make sure to do that. And uh, either way, we will talk again. Uh, Later on this week, ticket.